someone wailing and crying really loud. Um, usually it's uncomfortable. I remember uh, the one or two times in my life, maybe I've experienced this, uh, was at a funeral um, and just hearing someone not just cry but wail, like yelling, kind of screaming. Typically, when we think of someone just wailing or crying out loud like that, it's typically negative. There's been a loss, um, something that's just kind of retching at their heart. But there is times where people wail and cry, and it's actually for the positive. Um, I remember, um, I forgot even who it was, but there was like a, a college student. We were going to a party, my family and I, and the the host of the party their daughter surprise visited. Um, and, and suddenly you could just tell that the host could care less about the party. And the mom was just bawling and kind of like, oh my goodness. And again, it was awkward. But, uh, but it was in a different light. It was in a different light. That's where we are in the story today. We're in the story where Joseph is going to reveal himself to his brothers, and there is wailing. And yet, it is not necessarily out of loss. So I'm going to read here in chapter 45, in verse. we're going to read verses 1 through 8. Then Joseph could not restrain himself before all those who stood by him. And he cried out, make everyone go out from me. So no one stood with him while Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept out loud, and the Egyptians and the house of Pharaoh heard it. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Does my father still live? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed in his presence. And Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me. So they came near. Then he said, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into Egypt. But now do not therefore be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve my, to preserve life. For these two years the famine has been in the land and there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. And God sent me before you to preserve a posterity for you in the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So now it was not you who sent me here but God. And he has made a father, he has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord over all his house and a ruler throughout all the land of Egypt. Let's look to the Lord. Lord Jesus Christ, um, thank you so much uh, for your word. Um, And again, uh, I appreciate the fact that you have chosen to write most of it through the stories of people's lives. Uh, You are uh, the God of stories. Um, How you have uh, directed in people's lives from the beginning. And so thank you so much for that. We pray that you would encourage us in the faith this morning, that we would change, that we would be a people that love you more. Oh, Lord, be honored and glorified uh, above all. May we at Brantford Bible Chapel uh, grow close to you, that we might be like-minded in our unity, that we just want to please you. Help us. It's so hard sometimes to live this faith out. In your name, amen. Why in the world is Joseph crying out like this? Now, again, you could say, you know, he's upset. But reading in the context, as we see the next verses, he's going to forgive his brothers. 
So why is he wailing so loud that people in other rooms hear him? I mean, think about, you know, again, being in a separate room. If right now we heard someone crying and wailing in another room outside of this room, again, awkward, <laughs> saying, what is happening over there? Maybe not know how to respond. But Joseph is crying, and why? These previous chapters, he's actually cried by himself a couple times. If you remember in the story, he was about to break down emotionally with his brothers, and he didn't want to see them. He didn't want them to see him cry yet. And he's done that twice. He's gone away by himself to cry. And now he's in front of them, and he's just going to let it all out. He's going to let it all out. And what does he say to them? How do we know this is a positive thing? Because he tells them, come near to me. If he doesn't say, come near, we don't know exactly why he's crying. But when he looks at his brothers and says, come close to me, it's a positive thing. It's a positive thing. The only reason I think at this point in the story he reveals himself, and we'll talk about this a little later, is that the brothers have proven they've been repentant. But we'll talk about that a little more later. Joseph says, please come near to me. Come near to me. And this would be exactly what the Lord Jesus says to us on a daily basis. Come near to me. There's a few things that I just thought of, of why someone would say this. Pretty basic. I just wanted to think about why you would ever tell someone to come close to you. First of all, typically it's a sign of affection. You say, come close to me, because you love the person who you want to get close to. Okay? And this has to do with all personal space. I was in a meeting. It was interesting. I was in a meeting uh, this week for school and and uh, just some things, but... Um, I was actually getting trained on, a little negative, how to restrain students. <laughs> and we were talking about, you know, when you get into that moment, it's it's pretty intimate. And we had to go over all these charts of, of what does it mean to be in someone's personal space. Okay? And they have all these charts like, you know, public space, you can be within 10 to 20 feet of someone. Um, you know, a family member is like 2 to 4 feet or something. Like someone intimate, you're under 18 inches away. Within 18 inches, that's when you're in someone's space. And there's a lot of different things you can think about. You know, we, we talked about here in Connecticut, when you're, you know, 12 inches away from someone, that means you're, you're really intimate. If you're on the subway in New York City, eh, it's a typical day. Typical day. But the reason I talk about all these things of personal space is when someone says, come near to me, what are they really doing? They're inviting you in to your personal bubble. And you guys know, there, there, there's jokes about this, there's comedy specials about this, what it's like when someone comes into your personal bubble that you did not invite there. You, you don't want them in your bubble. <laughs> you kind of like, you back up, you're like, oh my goodness, why is this person still here? All those kinds of things. Joseph is telling his brothers, come near to me. Come near to me. Of all their history, he wants to tell them, please come near to me. What an invitation. What an invitation. Almost, uh, it reminds me a little bit, this is kind of a little funny, but I, I, you know, 
Do you remember the first time you tried to hold your significant other's hand? That's an intimate time. You know what I mean? I remember trying to hold Kim's hand for the first time to get into her personal space, so to speak. Hands sweaty, thinking about how to do it. Can we wait till like, you know, there's some kind of bump or I trip and grab the hand? Who knows? Okay? Because you know as soon as you make contact and you grab the hand, you have said something. You have said, I would like to be close to you. Okay, that's why it would be weird, again, if I went up to any of you and just randomly held your hand today. Okay, I'm in your personal space. But not weird for Kim, hopefully. Okay, because she's my wife. And so this whole idea of coming near has an idea of intimacy. It also has an idea of having something important to say. Okay, have you ever done this? Where when you're talking to someone, you say, Come here, I have to tell you something. Again, my wife and I will do this sometimes. She'll be in the kitchen, and, and she's cleaning up. I'm like, hey, I have to say something to you. And she typically goes, okay, say it. And that's just not good enough for me. <laughs> I have to say, come here. I have to tell you something. And she usually responds with, I can do two things at once. And I usually respond with, not me. So come here, please. <laughs> kind of like a little joke. It used to not be a joke, but now it's a joke between us, okay? But the idea is I want to tell you something, and I need you to come here. I need you to come here. You know, Abraham did this. Turn to Genesis chapter 18. It was interesting in reading this account again through this lens of thinking about the Lord Jesus wanting to be near us. Do you remember this story of Abraham interceding for Sodom and Gomorrah? And him and God are just having a normal conversation in some ways about the city. And the Lord tells him, I'm going to destroy Sodom. I'm going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. In verse uh, 23 of Genesis 18, it says this. And Abraham came near and said, Would you also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Interesting. Body language actually counts, right? Abraham draws near to the Lord to say, Hey, and again, he's talking to God. Would you also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Again, something that is so intimate and so powerful that you're not going to just blot that out. You're not going to say, hey, God, do you really want to destroy the righteous with the wicked? It's almost disrespectful. But if he can draw near and get close and say, God, would you really do this? There's a difference there. There's a difference. Why is Joseph saying, come near? What is he trying to say to them? Look at verse 5. But now... Do not therefore be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. I want you to catch all that happens in these couple sentences. His brothers who disrespected them, messed up their family, caused his father a lot of grief. He sees them. He says, come near. Not only do I forgive you, 
but I want you to forgive yourself. This is what he says. Not only is Joseph saying, I forgive you, but do not be grieved or angry with yourself. I forgive you, and it's okay to forgive yourself. It's okay. Think about how powerful those words are. Think about that. That Joseph would have to draw them near so he can almost quietly say, listen, God sent me here. Don't you be upset either about what you did to me. It's over. It's over. What an amazing thing if we think about the Lord Jesus doing that to someone who has a repentant heart. It's over. I have forgiven you. You forgive yourself too. Lastly, the reason someone would try to draw near it's a response to someone who's afraid. It says in verse 3, they were dismayed in his presence. They're terrified. They just realized the person that we gave up for death and then sold is the second most powerful man in the world. They are absolutely terrified. And by him saying, come here, Come close. And by the way, he's gotten rid of all the other people in the room. Does Joseph have people that might be have a sword next to him? I don't know. But I would think so. I would think he's got guys at the drop of his hat. He says, kill that person. They're done. And so the intimacy of him clearing the room so that it's just them. Is Joseph now outnumbered? Absolutely. Can he take on all his brothers? Absolutely not. He's humbled himself to a point where he gets rid of everyone else in the room and says, come here. And they're terrified. Terrified. And he's going to forgive them and tell them it's okay. Children do this all the time, right? The big thunderstorm, we had a big one yesterday. It's kind of fun as a parent, right? Just once in a while where that thunderstorm happens at night and your kids run into the room terrified. And all they want is just to be close to you. Because somehow you have the power to stop lightning and thunder. And somehow that 200-count thread of a sheet will protect them from anything. But it works. And if you can just be close to your parent at that time, everything's okay. And this is the intimacy, and this is some of the things that Joseph is saying when these guys are terrified. Get over here. It's okay. It's okay. The Lord Jesus has asked us to draw near to him since day one. Since day one. In the book of James, it says, draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. It's a promise. It's a promise. So some of us know this, and yet the practical application would be, how do we draw near? So if Jesus wants us to be so near to him, how do we do it? 
I want to turn to a familiar verse and hopefully break it down a little bit. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 22, let's look at that. And again, I, you know, to read one verse here in, in uh, Hebrews, there, I mean, that book is just, every verse is like a powerful punch. <laughs> uh, there is so much there in Hebrews uh, of doctrine and uh, for the times we live in now. And, and so I don't like to, to take one verse, but I'm also assuming some of you will kind of know what happens before this. It's basically the fact that Jesus' blood is enough to get rid of the sacrificial system. If I can sum up such a, a huge uh, <laughs> thing like that, okay? They're saying Jesus' blood is sufficient. We no longer need animal sacrifice, okay? And in verse 22, it says, Let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. How do you draw near? With a true heart? with full assurance of faith, and basically clean, clean. So let's start with a true heart, because this is where we're going to get into a little bit of why Joseph is doing this. Joseph is not just, quote, forgiving his brothers and kind of moving on. It doesn't work like that, okay? And it doesn't work like that for the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus wants you to absolutely draw near to him, but he doesn't let everyone into heaven, right? He doesn't let everyone into heaven. People make choices, to obey the gospel or not to. And as the Lord cries out to you, saying, please, let's get closer, let's get closer. I've often heard that the Lord Jesus is a gentleman. He'll never force it. He'll never force it. So what does it mean to draw near with a true heart? It just means to be sincere. It just means to be sincere. And this is one of those things that you can just, uh, just kind of sit and think about for a while. Just sit and think for a while, am I sincere in drawing near to the Lord? Am I sincere? The English word is derived from the Latin sincera for this word here uh, in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 22. With a true heart, or some of your translations might say a sincere heart. It has the idea of this. In the days when art flourished in ancient Greece, it was common practice to repair with invisible wax any vase or statue that had, as a result of carelessness or misadventure, been damaged. If a rich person or a person of high rank might employ a sculptor to chisel a statue of them in marble, but sometimes if the chisel slipped, the end of the nose would be chipped off. Rather than go to the trouble of making a whole new statue, the sculpture would so mend the features with wax so that the flaw could not be detected unless by very close scrutiny and palm off on the customer his defective workmanship. If the client happened to be a knowing person, he would carry the finished statue out of the studio into the open before paying for it and examine it carefully in the sunlight. Otherwise, in the course of time, he would have a chance of seeing the nose drop off his statue in the heated room of his house. The statue would not be sincere or without wax. It could not bear careful scrutiny in the sunlight. 
to have a sincere heart before the Lord means you haven't covered up anything with wax that you think he doesn't see. The idea of drawing near is to be open and honest, to be open and honest with him. The second thing there is to have full assurance. You know, this sounds funny, but actually a heart that really believes. A heart that actually believes it. And so we have talked about this verse over and over. We said this on the pulpit over and over. And we come here on Sunday mornings. We are to enter the presence of God with boldness coming before the throne, that we belong here, that he has made us righteous. And yet some of us, including myself, have a very hard time believing that. A very hard time believing that when we come here, the work is finished. And if we come with a repentant heart, we're clean, and we have the right and the God-given boldness to be before his presence and worship. But it's hard to believe sometimes. On a weekly basis, it can be hard to believe, God, am I really okay coming here and worshiping? Who, who, who am I to try to say something? To dare talk to you? What I just got into a fight on the way over here with my spouse, with my kids. What I just watched last night before I went to bed. What I just said at work and throughout the week. All those things. When I come here, if I confess those things, God, how do I believe that I can actually be here? with full assurance that the blood of Jesus Christ has paid for it. And when you confess, you draw near. You draw near. And this is the idea with three or four verses later that says, don't forsake the assembling of each other. Stir this up with one another. Stir up love and good works. Get together, people. Get close. Draw near to God and get near to each other so we don't forget we're forgiven. We're forgiven. We have rights to be here by the King of Kings. Don't miss out on that. Don't stay home and think I'll go later. Get here and be a part of it. Full assurance that we have rights to be here. But finally, with a clean heart, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil consciousness and our bodies washed with pure water. I'm going to give you some things that Joseph's brothers did that he might have seen a change in them. This is, you know, I got this out of a commentary before you think I did lots of work. They did not resent it when Benjamin was given the favored portion. That's in Genesis 43:34. Remember there was a coat in their past that they really got upset with. They trusted each other, not accusing each other of wrong, when accused of stealing the cup, in Genesis 44, 9. They stuck together when the silver cup was found. They did not abandon the favored son and allowed him to be carried back to Egypt alone. That's Genesis 44, 13. They completely humbled themselves for the sake of the favored son, in Genesis 44, 14. They bowed down. They knew their predicament was the result of their sin against Joseph. That's in Genesis 44, 16. They offered themselves as slaves to Egypt, not abandoning Benjamin, the favored son, their brother. That's again in 44, 16. They showed due concern for how this might affect their father. Genesis 44, 29 through 31. And Judah was willing to be a substitutionary sacrifice for his brother, out of love for his father and his brethren. That's Genesis 44, 33. 
There is a reason that Joseph would not cry in front of them or reveal himself to them right away. And there is a lot of wisdom in that. There's a lot of wisdom in that. It would have been foolish for Joseph just to go, hey guys, look who came in. He's going to see their heart before he reveals to them. And after we just read all this, he can now make the assumption they have changed. And because they are repentant, now I will say, come near and forgive yourself. And by the way, you're going to move to Egypt. And you have the most powerful man in Egypt ready to give you what you need. The Lord Jesus is not foolish. He does not take anyone and just say, come on over. There has to be a repentance. There has to be a crying out of, I've messed up. And once we do that, Jesus opens his arm every time, says, get over here, come here. I love you. What do you need? The kingdom is yours. But he is not doing that with people who are stubborn and stiff-necked and refuse to repent. Is he willing once they do? Yes. But we need to draw a line sometimes <laughs> and realize for your own benefit, if you don't feel close to the Lord, maybe you're being stubborn and not confessing certain things that you need to. Through this process, the brothers are reconciled to Joseph. We don't see the word here in the story. But again, if you keep reading even, he says, um, you know, you're going to move to Egypt. Um, God sent me ahead. The, the relationship has, quote, been restored. To reconcile can mean different things. I would like to think it means basically to be made friends again. Turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I'm going to read here in 2 Corinthians 5. We'll start in verse 18. Actually, we'll start in verse 17. Therefore, if anyone, is in, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. All things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ, and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So Joseph is now reconciling his brothers. He's going to restore this relationship. Obviously, it makes us think of the Lord Jesus. This whole portion is, is pretty plain and the idea that God has reconciled the world to himself through his son, Jesus Christ. He has now Jesus Christ is the bridge that has covered the gap that we might be close to God, forgiven for our trespasses against him. One, I think it's interesting. Now, 
I can't be 100% sure on this, but because there's reconciling. Sometimes the definition there is you were enemies beforehand and now you became friends. But there's also a piece that there was a relationship there that was broken and then was renewed. And so I'd just like to, to remind us that God had a, a plan for us and a relationship with us before we got saved, right? He's always had a plan. He knit us together in our mother's womb. There is always, on his side of things, he has always wanted to be with you. Always. You didn't get saved and then he went, okay, let's, let's start, you know, let's start this friendship kind of deal. He has always wanted a relationship with you. And that's why we needed Jesus Christ. So that he could have that. God has reconciled the world through his son, Jesus Christ. But now, Here's the interesting part about this. This great, uh, you can call it a ministry, you can call it a um, statement, this, this message of reconciliation. Not only did he do it, he put the onus on us to give the message. So God, you, you sent your son to die on a cross to forgive the world, to go through the, the depth of all that is. And now, those who got saved, you, you're entrusting them with the message that they'll get it out there. Entrusting us with this ministry of reconciliation, that we would be the ones to say, you understand you can be reconciled to God. Things can be restored. Why does all this matter? Because Christians, a lot of times, still have problems restoring friendships down here on earth and reconciling those who have offended them. And it's amazing that God entrusted this ministry of reconciliation with us, that we would be his ambassadors. We are the ones that have the message. Hey, you guys know God has a message for you? Let me share it with you. God gave me this message to give to you. You can be reconciled. And the world can look at us and go, wow, you must not have any relationships in your life that need reconciling. You really, have, you really believe God restored this relationship with you? Man, your relationships on earth must be great. That's how it should be. It's not always how it is. If we miss this idea that God's entrusted with us, the mess of the reconciliation, and we miss or we're too stubborn to actually fix broken relationships of people who have offended us and have wronged us, there's a depth of the gospel we don't know yet. Because that is the gospel. That we offended him, he did nothing wrong, and he still saved us. I want you to think, this is that horrible story in the Bible where you really can't, you can't get away from this one. There is not one reason Joseph should forgive these guys. From a human perspective, yes, I understand. We love people. I understand all that. But I want you to look at what Joseph did. I, I, to, to sit there, I mean, isn't it enough if Joseph goes, guys, get out of my presence. I won't kill you. Those guys walk home and go, he is so merciful. Right? And then for Joseph to sit there and say, come here, and I'm going to take care of you. 
Wait, what? And make sure dad comes along too. And we can be the family we always wanted to be. And this time, we got more money, we got more power, and so we got more than when I left. We can have that right now, and I want to be a family. That's what Joseph says to his, his brothers that left him in a pit and then sold him away like a slave. And we have people that have offended us for far less things. And we say, you know what? We'll fix it in heaven. There's parts of the gospel we're not understanding. There's parts of the gospel we're not understanding. And don't get me wrong. I'm not saying it's the, it wouldn't be the hardest thing in the world. But listen, here's what I'm convicted on in this message is that you can forgive someone and not reconcile with them. This is a step past forgiveness. Joseph could have forgiven his brothers. He didn't have to say, come over and let me give you all the best. And that's what we say about the Lord Jesus. God could have forgiven us from hell, and he would have been a very merciful God. But he didn't stop there. He gave us heaven. He gave us spiritual gifts. He's blessed us with every spiritual blessing. He said, anything you need to succeed at this walk, I'll give it to you. That's reconciliation. That's reconciliation. Remember the guy who's saying, I can only imagine, Bart Millard. Uh, if you've seen the movie, it's a pretty good movie. He had an abusive father growing up. And at the end of his life, he got to reconcile that relationship with his father. And in some ways, his father, I believe the story goes, uh, became a Christian. And that's where Bart, when he's reaching out to his father dying of cancer, says this. I guess I grew up thinking that if the gospel could change that guy, it could change anybody. There was no denying it. And then he said he went from a monster to the guy I wanted to be like when I grew up. That guy whose things I can only imagine did not just forgive his dad. He got to the point where he wanted to be with him. Then maybe even be like him. That's reconciliation. It, listen, it's tough to look at what Joseph really did for his brothers from a human perspective. And the brothers don't seem to ever get it. We've talked about this before. They still never really trust him at the end of his life. But Joseph, but Joseph is going to make things right. The last piece, and we'll close, is that Joseph says he is Lord of all Egypt. Again, great parallel with the Lord Jesus Christ. He's Lord of all. God the Father has honored him and given him a name above all names and put all things under his feet. And there's so much great scripture that talks about that in the New Testament. But I just want to kind of end with this. The one that has called us to draw near to him in those steps of how we can draw near and the one that has given us this ministry of reconciliation is also the Lord of all. <laughs> so sometimes we can hear a message. That's man so loving and, and he draws us near and he wants to reconcile. We forget he's Lord of all. 
The reason I say that is when we share the gospel even, I'm amazed how many times people go, yeah, I, yeah, I, I think about Jesus. Yeah, he's God. Yeah. Yeah, he's nice. He's loving. Didn't he forgive my sins or something like that? that that's what my non-Christian friends have said. No concept that he is Lord of all. That he controls everything by his might. That he has a plan. That he's coming back. And that those who do not obey his gospel do go to hell. That's Lord of all. It's that very God that we serve that said, Now, because I saved you and reconciled our relationship, don't let any of your relationships go unreconciled. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, thank you um, for uh, being willing to be the example. Um, Lord, for you to ask us to uh, be reconciled with one another um, is a huge task. And and uh, you are worthy to ask us that because you are God. But there's a depth of uh, your worthiness that you can ask us that because you've done it. You've done it. And so, again, Lord, thank you so much that it doesn't seem like there's anything that you have asked us to do that you have not done yourself. Um, and you didn't have to do it that way, but you have. And so we thank you for your example. We thank you for loving us so much and wanting us to be near to you. Help us to draw near to you this week. In your name, amen.